This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Hi everyone and welcome to part two of our mini-series called Mending the Divides, where we're looking at ways that we can build back better from the COVID-19 pandemic by becoming a church that plays more of a role in bridging the gaps and in bringing reconciliation wherever it's needed in our society. In part one, I outlined four stages that we need to go through as a church in order to meaningfully engage with any issue of division and injustice. These four stages were taken from the book called Mending the Divides, and they were see, immerse, contend, and restore. We spent most of part one discussing what we have seen around the issue of racial injustice, identifying some of the things that we've perhaps come to understand a little bit better during the last year. Today, I want to follow on from that talk by continuing to press into the second stage, immersing ourselves in the issue, and really doing two things that are super important during this stage. And those are building relationship with those who are impacted by the issue, and secondly, spending time listening to their experiences and to their views. So today, instead of me talking, I'd like to introduce you to some of our nearest neighbors in the city, Pastor Ossian and Pastor Fatima Sabanda, who lead a church called God's House, which meets at the Premier Inn which is literally just a stone's throw away from where we normally meet at Seven Vineyard at the station. I met Fatima and Ossian through prayer breakfasts that are organized for church leaders, and I've loved getting to know them a little bit recently. I believe they're an important voice for us and for the wider church in Bristol at this time. So I'm really excited to be able to share part of an interview that I've recorded with them. And I invite you just to sit back, to listen as they share, to listen with an open heart and with that intention to understand. I began by asking Ossian to tell us a little bit about the church that they lead. God's House is a multicultural church, dynamic. We've got about 24 nationalities in the church. We've got people from Guatemala. We've got people from Spain, from the Philippines, from Brazil, and obviously Africa and different plus. So 24 nationalities. So we are quite a, a broad multicultural church. And then our vision really is summed up in four words that we describe. So we say we want to be a church that is home away from home. For anybody who is not at home in Bristol, we want them to find a place. So it means to be a church where all people groups are at home and we prepare them for having the ultimate home. So that's our vision in summary. And then our mission statement is just connect and engage, connect and engage, connect and engage. So we take opportunities where we can connect and engage with people with our ultimate plan or, 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 or program to share the gospel eventually. So that is the mission statement, connect and engage. And then our strategy really is brighten the corner where you are. And, and it comes from the book or, or, of the Bible where it says make a difference wherever you are through faith and good works. Through our men's ministry, we do our prison work to mentor men in prison. We also run our football tournament, the legacy football tournament with the men's ministry to engage our young boys in the community to see how they can come in. Then we have our women's ministry. We empower women from all ages to be confident about themselves, to be proud of themselves, to appreciate themselves, to uh, contribute without fear 
in society and make them whole and holistic contributors in, in, our, in our community. We realize that we're in a community that is different to us. So we give due regard to other fellow human beings, irrespective of culture, gender, faith, race. So that's what we mean by respect because we know God made us differently. That is wonderful to hear. And if I can maybe ask uh, Pastor Fatima, uh, it's obviously been a difficult time for everybody during this pandemic. Uh, I was wondering how it has affected you and your church family, um, whether you can give us any insight into some of the challenges that you've been facing. Yeah, thank you, Dan, for this opportunity to just have a chat together and uh, educate each other about what is going on around us. Being a family church, COVID has affected us as a family in that the most important aspect of our family life as a church is coming together. So imagine the taking away of gathering together abruptly most of the people from our backgrounds come also from cultures that strive with doing things together, eating together. It's a big aspect of our lives without necessarily making appointments of let me check in my diary when you can come. Most of us have come from backgrounds that we, it's obvious that we do things together. So that was a challenge. It was loss of the, the, the hugs, the, the time together, the growing together, the seeing each other practically was a loss. We have uh, a big, big percentage of our working force being in the health industry. We have doctors, we have nurses, we have uh, healthcare assistants. And you know, they all obviously became frontline workers. And as frontline workers, those are most of the people who got ill in our church, the COVID itself. They got it on duty. And obviously, some of us being part of the a, a black community, we were affected more. And some of us come from those deprived areas where you live with your family, you live with your loved ones, you live with extended family. So how will you isolate in a small house? How are you going to do all that, that, that which they were telling us? was not practical in some of our people's lives because you are eight in a house. You and your children, maybe, and the two nieces that have come from our, your, your, your country of origins, you are looking after. We are not all uh, just having our nuclear families. In some cases, it's a luxury. We have our loved ones we live with. So if one of us catches it, we have nowhere else to go. It means it's going to spread in the house. So it would affect us more than others. But then when people say it's affecting black people, they don't know how. It's because we are saving in these hospitals and in these places. And when people are taking time off, some of our people couldn't take that time off because if you take time off and you are the breadwinner, especially for our single moms, who will feed your children? So you are forced even to go. So that, that was tough. And another a way we were affected is failure to do closure with the loss of our loved ones because of the numbers allowed for funerals. And for us, when someone passes away, it's not a matter of uh, you just uh, go to uh, where you are in the parlor, where you are just kept. We do services every evening until the person is buried. 
where you are singing, you are worshiping, you are eating together. That's how we can fought each other. That removes that pressure that is building inside of you. And for us, grief is shared practically. So we don't ask, can I come to your house when you lose a loved one? We all go. It's an expectation. That's who we are. And all that is to be removed. So it means you are mourning alone in a house. In fa family in Africa, we've been doing Zoom funerals. A lot of Zoom funerals just for you to have closure. And watching that you can't be there watching your family hurting and they can't do it has been a, a, a problem. Uh, for me, I couldn't even bury a cousin, uh, not even in Africa, in London here. Yeah, we couldn't go because the, our numbers were not allowed, we were many. And then we have a sister even from Guatemala, a brother, she couldn't fly home to bury simply because of the travel bans and all this. So and now we must think about our own who are ill in Africa, Guatemala, France, Italy, they are dying. It's, it's, it has not been just as easy as let's follow the guidelines, hear what they are saying. And, and in our mind, it's a, it's a mentally challenging thing because we are stressing thinking, although God gives us peace, these are realities that we face and it's not us only. We are thinking across the congregation because we are coming from different countries. So when we are sitting here just watching news and saying, these are the figures, this is happening. For us, what we are thinking of is, will they be there tomorrow? COVID is not affecting us locally. It's affecting us internationally. And even if we are not there, we are there. Until you yourself have nothing and they are saying, God of Israel, can you help us? I'm also mourning. I'm needing to be comforted. But I have to forget my own loss to think about the sheep. Because as you are their shepherd, they don't realize that even a shepherd is tears. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. It certainly sounds really challenging as leaders and challenging as a church family being so multicultural and diverse, it comes with that additional challenge of connection and awareness and uh, love, you know, for family and loved ones in different places. I'd like to move on to another challenge because, as you know, at Seven Vineyard, we're on a journey of learning about racial justice and thinking about what our role and what our response is. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your own experience of this issue from South Africa, but also here in the UK, uh, and what your reflections on it are. If I give uh, personal examples, it would involve South Africa and it would also involve Zimbabwe, where some of our family are. Having been under a colonial uh, regime, your mindset, is wired to show you that you will always be the underdog for, for white people. That's how you grow up. They are our masters. Obviously, and again, in South Africa, it, it was a law. It was institutionalized. So you don't think, you know, I'm black. This is where we belong. They are white. This is where they belong. And the sad thing for me is that uh, most of the people who have been pushing for these racial injustices have been using the word of God to do this. It is said that when Noah was drunk, he was told that Ham looked at you when you were naked. And then Noah cursed Ham. In the case that he pronounced, he said, you are going to be a servant for the rest of your life. 
and you are going to be a servant of servants and also you are going to be a servant of shame and Japheth for the rest of your life. And we, as black people, are defined as Kushites, the descendants of Ham. So that means our lot is to be servants for the rest of our lives. So that meant within the church setting in South Africa, when they were discriminating and, and, and doing what they were doing, because you were thinking the church would be better, sinners don't know better. But we who are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are family, we shouldn't be treating each other. But then they use this verse to say, this is our place. Even in the church, we are their servants. Anything we do, we have to do, make sure they are comfortable first. And then services were not allowed to mix. And then when the independence came in South Africa, things changed. But mindsets did not change. We were still seen as Kushites who are servants of servants. So when you are born black, you are already born a servant. And when you are born white, you are already born as a master. So to remove this from their heads is taking serious renewal. And it's a slow process because people are still stuck at that, believing that. And also our parents were the ones who are their slaves. They are their domestic servants. They are their masters. And with the children of domestic servants, our lot is also to be domestic servants. If, if our parents didn't, by good grace, get the revelation of sending us to school. By now, those were our jobs earmarked for us, cleaning and cooking for white people for the rest of our lives. But we want to thank God for the progress that has been made. Sadly, some people are still practicing this, and we cannot remove it from them until they get the revelation and understanding of misquoting of, of scripture. This is not what it is all about, but people have run with it. And I, that is also what was happening even in America and wherever where we are looked at as Kushites. When I came here, I was thinking it's easier in England. But on my arrival itself, the church I first went, they stopped me by the door. And I was thinking that I've come to England because I heard British people are very friendly. They are kind. They can be diplomatic about things, but they are not racist. That is what was believed. But when I came here, before I could do anything, I found a name of a church the same week I arrived. I was excited to say, at least Sunday, I'm not going to fail to fellowship. I went and I saw them advertising Saturday. Saturday, I went on the door itself. That's when I was beaten away to say, you are not welcome. You can't come in here. And I'm saying, but this is a church. And they are saying, yes. And anyway, today's event, you need money to get in. And I'm thinking, okay, how do they know I don't have money? Not that I hate it, but how do you know I don't have money? Already in your mind, I don't have money, I'm black. And then I insisted to say, no, if you are calling this a church, I am going and I push my way to say, I'm not allowing this again in my life. I am not going to be oppressed. I went in there and I saw, oh, I'm the only black person. You could hear a needle dropping in that building when I walked in. And yes, they were having a fundraising for missions, which I found very ironical to say, I'm missions. Why can you not accept me? You want to be happy to send money to India and to Africa. The African is here. Why can you not embrace me? I was not meant with friendliness. I was not, it was, it was a hostile environment. So I had to leave it. And I left and I went back home, gutted. 
Why do you think we hold these blind spots or prejudices towards other people? I think some of it is inherited. It's passed down to us by our environments because your environment shapes you. So if you come from a family that does not understand other races and other cultures and you just grow up, all you know is what's in your house. And when you see people who are different to you, you might think uh, you don't know how to celebrate difference because you were not raised that way. If you are not taught to be hospitable around people, you are not going to be hospitable. And also, if you already grow up uh, feeling your skin is better than others, the skin color is better than others, you don't have to be told that person is black. You can see they are black and you think we are better than them. And also, if you are black, if you are not taught that, you are unique, embrace who you are, have self-esteem, no one is better than you, we are all equal under God, you can grow up automatically thinking they are better than us, so that's how you behave. Some of it is adopted in society, that's how society is. The idea of pride and arrogance that I am better than others, this one is now a deeper level of it, it's just pride that you think you are better, and because you are better, you must be treated better, you must get more privileges. It's, it's you thinking you're better than others and not acknowledging that we are equal under God. I think it's also systemic. The system put it in place to protect the minorities that were in power. And because of that system, and then it became like a, a law kind of in, or in quotes to say, this is how it does. Like in South Africa, the system protected that and they used divide and rule to make sure they maintain the status quo. And that way they were able to enjoy the benefits by suppressing. So they put it as part of law and in the system. So when everyone else grows up, the system now becomes their educator and their parents. And then they, so that's why you find that in most of countries in Africa, they these liberation struggles, liberation wars, they were fighting to liberate themselves from the system. That system came in the church as well. And would you say that is true here in the UK, even though it, it looks different to maybe how it looked in Africa, but it's still true and still present here? Yes, it is true, because our problem is if you are different to me, you are a threat. If you are different to me, you are likely an enemy. So it's in the system. I'll give you an example. When we came here, we tried to rent a property. Then I called and then when they picked up my accent, just like that, they said, it's gone, it's taken. And then when I told our friend, she phoned and then said, it's available. And then in the end, I called again, they said, it's taken. So we had to drive together with our friends to the offices. And she went ahead of us and they offered her the place. And then she said, actually, I'm actually talking for my friends here because on the phone, you told them it's not there. So they were embarrassed and gave us the place. So where would that have come from? So it's something like what Fatima is saying, the system made it a culture and part of that to say, when you are like this, you are not part of us. So those are the challenges that uh, I say it's more systemic. It is happening here. I tried to apply to be a chaplain in the army. I struggled to get in there. The reasons I was given were immense. In the end, they said, you are too old. But when I went to the offices, they say the cutoff for a chaplain in the army is 50 years. 
I was 40 at that time. So it's a system that identifies black as criminal. That's why when you walk a street, somebody is coming with their handbag, they clutch at their handbag. And yet I'm thinking, I'm actually, I could be safer than you as a vicar in this. So it's the system that has taught us those things. Yeah, that's very helpful to understand a little bit more. So where do you find hope, you know, in the teaching of the Bible or in Jesus, things that can help us to challenge this racism, this prejudice in our society, in our own hearts? I love Jesus because Jesus died for all. I love the way Jesus was radical in his mission here on earth. That's why he was not understood. That's why he was called a a friend of sinners. The way he made heroes out of underdogs blessed me. I think we all know, most of us know of the account of the good Samaritan. The hero that is being made, the one who did the right thing, the one who was kind, the one who was relevant, the one who rescued, the one who ministered was a Samaritan. It's not written the story of a good man. And it's not written the story of a good rabbi. It is written it was a good Samaritan. And when we learn about the history of the Samaritans, we will see that these were the ones that were looked as underdogs, looked down as underdogs. Uh, there was a lot of prejudice against them. Uh, and they were not even valued at all, the Samaritans. And there was nothing to be called good about a Samaritan. But Jesus said, the good Samaritan. And he, and, and he said, we should do likewise. Do likewise. When he left the person in the inn and he said, I will come back. If there are any bills, I'll take care of it. This is the underprivileged, no status person, marginalized person. But Jesus lifted him and said, that copy, do like what he did. He's saying there's something good about Samaritans. Don't look down on them. There's something good. If you get to know them, if you work with them, if you work with them, you will benefit from what is in them. Amen to that. Yeah, that's a wonderful source of hope. And Pastor Ossian, what advice would you give to us to continue on this journey to become a community where everyone feels welcome and to play our part, you know, where, where reconciliation is needed? I think, I think the first thing is to be open-minded and to trust God that uh, there is no harm in embracing people who are of different culture to you because the uh, man is really a spirit, spirit has no color. And the easiest step forward is to make an effort to step out of your comfort zone. If there is a program in one such church across the road, step out and go there. Just, just go out and participate and see what is happening. And then if you have got something in that, in your space also, go out and invite somebody and encourage them to come in. And in your inviting them, you'll realize, understand that it will not be easy for them to come. They might need a bit of support because of past experiences of this treatment. So they are afraid to come into that space already because of past pain and wounds. So that there is a lot of that extra reaching out to that because you won't know me until you get into my space. Even this interview, Though we are blessed to be open, 
But really, you won't really know me until you come to my house and see me leaving my socks on the couch. It's only in my space that you want you know me more. So our problem is we know each other at arm's length. That is why we will not get the gem out of the hearts that God has given us. So I think the best way, make an effort to pull down the walls, get into the programs these people are doing, learn what they do, see what they do, ask questions, invite them to your house. Our culture, you are my friend if you come to my house and I come to your house. As it is knowing each other from the offices, we are, we, it's done. And, but when you step out and you come into my house, I know you are my friend because you consider my safety. So I think that is the way to engage with uh, African communities, understand what's major and what's a priority to them. In the process, you see how we relate to our children, how we apply our faith in our homes. That's the only way to come together. Wow. Thank you so much for putting a challenge before us and also an invitation. You know, uh, that's how I take it. And we would certainly love to continue, you know, this journey of getting to know one another and building relationship and trusting that God is leading us along the way. So could I ask either of you to maybe pray for us that we would have the courage to keep going, the wisdom to know next steps. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege and it's been good knowing you. I'm very grateful for your heart and your life to reach out to us and get to know us. Now we have got another prayer item because now I find myself praying for you more. I hear Fatima praying for you. So that is the way to go. You have been part of that, which we value and treasure. And we pray, we want to see you succeed. We want to see you do well because of your heart that you have. So may God bless you and your family and the church there. So thank you very much, church, for getting time to spend time with us. I'm going to pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the time to share, to bear our hearts out in an effort to bring understanding, in an effort to bridge the gap, in an effort to allay any fears, doubts, and misunderstanding. I pray for my brother Dan, and I pray for the church. Mighty God, as, a, as they have a desire, Father, to reach out and be effective and be the soul that you created them to be, I pray that you will give them the strength and the courage and the boldness to step into the water that they will have the boldness to come out of the boat and walk on water to meet Jesus. Father, grant them the grace, grant them the joy of the journey. I pray that you will provide their needs above all, fill them with the Holy Ghost, overshadow them with the Holy Ghost who is their helper, so that they may tap into that world that you are calling them into for their growth, their development, and their future. I pray that you bless their effort, bless their project. Father, listen and answer their prayer, we pray. That whatever the request they have, let them see the fullness and the manifestation of your work. I pray for the grace and the confidence to walk in you, Father. Let the gifts of the Holy Spirit be manifest in them so that you lead them. We see in the early church that they stepped out the boldness of the Holy Ghost. Empower them, oh Father, so that they will carry, oh God, the entire working of Bristol and stitch this city together with your love and your grace. Father, I commit them to you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, 
for their work and effort. Father, let there be spots of encouragement as they go through for them to know that the Lord is guiding them. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, a big thank you to Ossian and to Fatima for sharing with us today, for taking the time to record that interview. There is a longer version of it available on our website, our YouTube channel, and on our podcast if you're interested. I loved hearing their heart and their vision, and I so appreciated their willingness to share honestly with us about things that are challenging and personal and at times painful. So thank you again to them. Now, I hope that for all of us who listened to Ossian and Fatima, there were one or two things that maybe stood out to us or caught our attention, things that will stay with us and that will inform the actions that we go on to take as we seek to contend for racial justice and as we continue on this journey of learning what it means to be peacemakers and agents of reconciliation in our city.